Good morning and welcome to Element FM and Moment of Truth. And Moment of Truth is brought to you in part by APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Today on the show, we have a couple of things going on. I was fortunate enough to be able to speak with Santi Smith, the artistic director of Gahawi Dance uh, Troupe Theatre. And we're going to bring you that interview. It's a short uh, interview about her upcoming show that is happening at Harbourfront this week in Toronto. It's called Blood Ties. I had the chance to speak with her, uh, fortunately, take time out of her special or her, her very busy day. And uh, we're going to run that for you right now. And afterwards, we're going to go into some music by the the artist who has created the the soundtrack and the, the, the music for that show, and her name is Chris Dirksen. She is uh, she plays a cello, a very cool cello. If you haven't seen her, I recommend you check her out. And uh, we're going to play a little bit of her music. It's not the music from the show, but it gives you an, a, a sense of maybe what uh, what uh, what Chris does, and maybe what you'll see if you're thinking of uh, going to check out the show. And that's at uh, at the Harbor Front, and that's going to be um, uh, from the from Thursday to Sunday, as I say at Harbor Front in the Fleck Dance Theater. And uh, so we're going to go to that interview right now with Santi Smith. Also coming up, we're going to be listening and talking about the Canada Food Guide as well uh, after we uh, speak with Santi Smith. And uh, we're going to have uh, Tarina Delormer on the line from the Yukon. And that'll be coming up after this interview. Morning, Santi. How are you? Morning. Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the air. Thank you. It's good to be here. So listen, uh, last I saw you was in I think around November at the Socrates uh, project at McMaster University when you were performing the Mush Hole project that you were doing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now you've got a new show uh, that's coming up uh, this week at Harborfront in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blood Tides that we're having our Toronto premiere. We premiered it last May at uh, Center for the Arts in St. Catherine. Mm-hmm. So I reassembled our team. We have international Indigenous women artists from um, New Zealand, Aotearoa, and uh, Mexico, and from Six Nations. And so we're working really hard to get our blood tides back together and present at Harpercent Center. And it's being presented by DanceWorks. Yeah. Uh, how many How many uh, people are in the show? Four women on stage mm-hmm. and a lot of people behind the scenes have made it happen. But um, on in the performance uh, for for intergenerational women, so we're from teens until the fifties. Yeah. So the description I have here of blood ties sounds very cool. Uh, activates activates sacred el- uh, alignments from cosmos to womb. Imagery mm-hmm. and energies spanned a wide range of what is woman. From warrior to leader, mm-hmm. mother, divine goddess, creator. Now this one is interesting. Thresholder of life and death and huntress. That's that's kind mm-hmm. of a cool. What does that mean? Well, thresholder of life and death is because we through our monthly uh, cycling mm-hmm. we hold that within our bodies, uh, the potential for life and the potential for death. So in indigenous cultures, that was very much. Um, recognize that the the women sort of um you know decided on um you know uh community-based things including um you know the the 
next generations. Mm. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because, I, of course, um, you know, in, in mainstream society versus indigenous society, moon time is a very, very special time for women. It is, yeah, yeah. And we're kind of flipping, it, it's really flipped because for for pre-colonial and indigenous um, uh, cultures, indigenous cultures, that was a very special gift and, and uh, important connection, something that was recognized, especially at uh, puberty rites, rites mm. of passage, and all the phases that both men and women had throughout their lifetime uh, was uh, ceremonially um, demarked uh, their passage of time, mm. and um, so and that being one of them, um, and that's what we represent uh, on the stage with um, our young dancer Julianne Blackbird, who plays the youth, mm. performs that role of going to the rites of passage at uh, Manar time, and the importance and the <clears throat> excuse me celebration of that, and um, and now in society that's. Uh, mostly through the influence of Christianity and um, colonial, that was always uh, in to this day, even in our communities, it's not something not to be talked about. Mm. You know, you don't talk about those things, mm. and you know, it's associated, uh, you know, with um, you know, uh, dirtiness or mm. you know, like that's so it's it was it's really flipping or going back to our original importance of acknowledging women in all his cycles. And, and I think that's great. It's also somewhat timely that you're you're bringing this back, you know, with the Me Too movement and all the attention mm-hmm. that women have been getting, and, and mm-hmm. rightfully so. Yeah, well, the whole triptych series that I started back in, really, it's been a long time in the process, but I have three works that are based on rematriation. That means that means really going back to pre-colonial knowledges and bringing them into the present and connecting with Indigenous women and sharing knowledges that we have. And um, so that that's been ongoing. And for Blood Tides, it's the second work, and um, so it's it's been um, very interesting and and really enlightening. But the main reason and kind of the impetus to do the work was missing and murdered, responding to missing and murdered Indigenous women, mm. the status of Indigenous women, even down into uh, the Indian Act and how that affected our bodies and our sovereignty. So it had this sort of social political um, impetus to create the work, but also to find that strength of, well, this is not you know how we live traditionally, this is not our way. Um, and bringing power back into the women's sacred femininity in balance with masculine. Mm. So that was, for us in Oklahoma, it was really important that there was balance. That was like the number one, um, you know, value or goal was to live in balanced harmony with each other. And right now, we're living in a very patriarchal system, yeah. which is not serving a lot of people. Right, yeah. Well, of course, and, and Haudenosaunee being matriarchal societies. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that came mm-hmm. to mind when, when you were talking there was the other uh, thing that has that is, is been in the news lately is this forced sterilization that we've been hearing yeah. about as well. So yeah. very timely. Mm-hmm. I think this is great that, that uh, you're doing this. You know, the other thing, Sandy, about your shows that I've always enjoyed and think is one of the most powerful elements that you always seem to bring to your presentations, and not just your performances 
uh, and the strong performances that your your actors and the dancers bring. But it's the mm-hmm. music. You always have these amazing mm-hmm. music uh, soundscapes right. and, and beautiful things that, that accent what you're doing. So I'm just wondering, uh, what have you done this time? Well, it's not going to be disappointing this time around. It's a beautiful score by um, um, Chris Dirksen, is the main my main collaborator. She did the overarching score. And then, as I usually do, I bring in other musical collaborators. So hang on a sec, Chris. You mean Chris, the uh, the cello player? Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she, she created all of the score. And then on top of that, we added um, original songwriting and vocals from Purifei. Mm-hmm. Purifei is um, one of the collaborators on the piece and, and, and also in terms of the content. So when I'm working with these different Mostly indigenous women, they're, you know, informing the overall content of the work and not just doing, you know, creating a song. They're giving their experiences. They're, you know, adding to the layers that is Blood Tides. Mm-hmm. Um, Samaya Kahali-Smith, who's my daughter, mm-hmm. uh, represents, um, created two songs as well, representing more of that feminine voice, the uh, young, youthful mm-hmm. voice. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just in, at the time she was... Um, I think 18 when she created the songs. Um, also adding additional scoring um, was a uh, Maori, traditional Maori instrument artist. And they call call the work that they do tangapururu. Mm. So those are all um, traditional instruments from New Zealand that really are all organic. So they're shells, they're um, wooden instruments, so it just adds this beautiful layer because I because of the collaboration I was doing mm. with New Zealand that's been mm. ongoing for years. It's, mm. it's great to have that um, in the hearing it as well, um, including one of my major collaborators and advisors, Nahuya Murphy. She's from um, New Zealand as well. She's Maori, and she. Um, was generously offered her kerikia and her karanga, which is the sort of um, it's it's not necessarily ceremonial, but it is does have a ceremonial context of activating before ceremonies or activating space before um, meeting meetings. So her voice calls to the ancestors and. Mm. And uh, so uh, that's just, there's a lot of context uh, with um, bringing in these artists because they're adding so much mm. to, to the um, to the content. And Adrian Hardro, who's one of my go-to music guys who um, lives down the road for me, which is very convenient. I can go drive down the road at usually <laughs> around... 10 at night and work till about two in the morning, um, uh, adding additional scoring and layering just to fill out, flesh out the movement. And now that we, he, he sometimes looks at us in, in the vid, in a video and then just, you know, makes the additional music happen. Mm. Well, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that you brought brought Chris in to to work on this, mm-hmm. especially it being a a women's project. It sounds like so. Yeah, it's yeah. great that you did that, and uh, people can see that from uh, Thursday, I guess, to Saturday at uh, mm-hmm. at the Harbor Front. 
Yeah, it's at the Fleck Dance Theater. Yeah. And the shows are at 8 p.m. And um, it's uh, the score is is pre-recorded, so mm. there's no live music. Right. But it's um, but it's uh, a very visceral and cinematic presentation. Okay, so we encourage everyone to try and get down there to see your show. And Santi, as usual, I wish you all the best with everything uh, you are doing. And you've been uh, running the show uh, and, and uh, bringing uh, great works to the community and beyond for since 2005. I realized. Well, that's how long old the company, my company mm-hmm. is, Kahawi Dance Theater, yeah. but it's, it's longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> because I started, I started creating in 1996, yeah. so it's been a while. Yeah. But I still enjoy what I do, and i um, really happy to be able to have the opportunity to collaborate with amazing mm. Indigenous folks and non-Indigenous folks, too. Okay, Santi, we're, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to say Anyawa okay. for joining us today on the show. Yeah, and on, uh, Yeah, and look forward to uh, seeing the show and, and all the best with, with all your future endeavors. And uh, again, that's at Harborfront from uh, Thursday to Saturday. Uh, you said 8 p.m.? Yeah. 8 p.m. at the okay. Fleck Dance Theatre for the Gahawi Dance uh, Theatre Blood Ties this week. In Toronto. Any shows coming up in the Ottawa area? We broadcast to the Ottawa area as well. You got shows coming up there? Um, not not that I know of. Maybe in um, next year or the year after, mm. we will be touring the Mush Hole. So oh, that's good. one of that's um I'm already gearing up to mm. share that with as many people as possible because of the important story that it, mm. it talks about. Right. Okay, Sandy and Yawagoa and uh, Ona. Ona and there you have it. That's our interview with Santi Smith. Uh, she was uh, she gave us a call yesterday, and I was uh, able to g- uh, get a few minutes with her. And uh, some news to tell you about Santi Smith uh, that just uh, coming down the pipe today. Santi Smith is going to be named the next chancellor of McMaster University University in Tor- in uh, Hamilton. So very cool, and congratulations to Santi on that uh, on that uh, uh, that position. So congratulations to her. And uh, so now, joining me on the line from the Yukon, we have uh, our next guest, uh, and she is Dr. Trina DeLorimer, and she is going to talk to us us about Canada's Food Guide. And Canada's Food Guide recently came out with new recommendations, but as many of us know, uh, Indigenous people don't necessarily have the access to some of the foods that are being recommended in that Canada Food Guide. And uh, so we were able to get a hold of Trina to talk to us about this. Now, Trina is uh, recently joined the School of Human Nutrition at McGill, McGill University in Montreal as an associate professor, and she's also serving as the associate director of McGill's Center for Indigenous Peoples, Nutrition and Environment. Trina, good morning and welcome to the show. Oh, okay. So apparently uh, we're having a few technical difficulties and uh, we will try. Hello? Hello? I'm here. Oh, great. Here. Great. Good morning. Welcome Good morning. to the show, and thanks for, uh, thanks for being able to join us today. Oh, my pleasure. So, uh, Trina, um, this Canada food, food Guide that has come out recently, um, as we were just saying, it doesn't necessarily meet the needs of Indigenous people, especially in the North. Um, I believe this is something that you specifically are looking into. Yeah, well... Before the food guide was released, they you know worked on a report that summarizes the rationale and the description of the recommendations and so forth. 
And um, I, along with another colleague who's an indigenous um, nutritionist as well and a researcher, we had a chance to look at those recommendations beforehand and have some input onto the, um, you know, the... Hello? 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 Looks like we uh, we have an issue with our technical uh, lines. Uh, we're going to go to uh, to uh, some music by Chris Dirksen at this moment, just to give uh, give it a chance to see if we can reconnect with Trina. Okay, so it uh, looks like we have uh, have a little bit of technical issue there with the line. We'll try and get uh, Trina back on the on on the line with us. She is in the Yukon, and we look forward to talking with her more about uh, Canada's Food Guide and and some of the uh, some of the nutritional uh, availabilities for indigenous people and how that food guide could be augmented for indigenous people. So we're going to try and, uh, get her back on the line to talk about that, but we're going to go to uh, some music at this point in time. We'll be back on Element FM. We are back on Moment of Truth and Element FM uh, coming to you from Toronto and Ottawa. And we are very pleased to say that we have our guest back on the line, uh, Dr. Tarina Delormer. Uh, Torino, thank you very much for being patient with us. We appreciate uh, that you uh, stood by and and we were able to get those technical issues worked out and have you on the line with us once again. Yes, thank you. It's good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) So as we were saying just before uh, we got interrupted there, um, we were talking about Canada's Food Guide. You were actually saying something about even before the recommendations came out. Well, yeah, we were talking about, you know, the does the food guide meet the needs of, you know, indigenous peoples mm-hmm. in Canada? And I mean, if we just start with that question, maybe it's, um, I can make a comment about that first, is that when you look at the, the plate, you know, which is sort of the front piece of the food guide and gives an overall, you know, perspective on what people should be eating to mm-hmm. be healthy, yep. it doesn't reflect traditional food systems. No. You know, we know that if you take, you know, an Inuit community, the you know marine mammals are are not necessarily represented there, and maybe even eating on a plate and those sorts of things. You know, so um, I think in trying to have one guide for every person in Canada, you know, is is um, impossible to do. But it definitely does not um, reflect the diets or the food, the indigenous food systems of um, you know indigenous people in Canada. Mm. So, so then, what is our what is the choice? How does the guide get updated to allow for those things? Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I was saying earlier is that you know, along with that front page that you see with the plate and the food on it and the the simple messaging, there's a document, the policy guidelines that go with that that explain more in detail. And I had the opportunity, along with another uh, colleague of mine who I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, Sandra. Yeah. Um, Judelainen, and we we went through the guidelines, and we suggested you know places that basically these guidelines needed to be contextualized. You know, like the one clear issue was um, food insecurity, so people's lack of um, or limited access to to healthy foods or limited availability of food, and we know that especially in the north. Um, um, and the northern parts of provinces and remote communities, food access is, is a serious issue. Um, and we have enough data now from monitoring surveys that show the rates of food insecurity are, are a crisis in some communities. Um, so, you know, how can you really attain a healthy diet if you cannot, you know, afford those foods? And this, this is the case for many people in Canada as well who can't afford to buy food, but it's a particularly... 
um, serious situation for Indigenous communities. So we made that clear, you know, like this is the situation in communities, um, Indigenous communities. And we didn't just mention that food insecurity was the issue. We wanted to make clear that that was not um, something that just happened, that these things are a result of, um, you know, Indigenous people being displaced from their lands. Um, it's related to the residential school history, which disconnected people from their culture and practices. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we really contextualize the food insecurity issue for, for market foods, for example, the things you'd buy, but also for um, food systems, you know, that are locally um, used so that people are being challenged now with things like climate change, which mm-hmm. are changing ice conditions and water conditions, making hunting and fishing, um, you know, unpredictable more than before yeah. and dangerous. So, yeah, we we um, had a chance to um, have some input and contextualize those guidelines and why it could be problematic sometimes. So when you when you you know as you start to say those things to me it sounds to me especially with with what has has happened with indigenous people and and as you mentioned the north specifically uh in you know the residential school system being taken away from the culture the practices the hunting traditions and and, and those kind of things sounds like the food guide should not only recommend uh or or, or augment it itself to to take that into consideration in terms of what these people should be eating uh, homegrown, but also some, uh, I don't know, do, do people need to to get trained in terms of their, their practices again, you know, and, and, and what to, to look for on the land. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because in the food guide for all Canadians, you know, there is an emphasis on um, cooking and cooking skills and eating with family and things like that. You know, and again, when we talk about people learning cooking skills or food preparation skills, we had the same recommendations that people haven't been able to learn how to properly or even how to, you know, prepare uh, an animal, butcher an animal, how to wash corn, you know, Mm -hmm. how to harvest rice because they weren't taught those things. So Mm -hmm. it's so important that that context is there. And of course, we don't expect, or at least I don't expect, I don't think Health Canada does either, that the food guide is going to be like... um, you know, able to address all of those issues. Sure. But we do have bigger policy um, bodies and frameworks that um, need to ensure that Indigenous people's rights to access their traditional foods are upheld, you know. And so I think um, when you have a document like this that's identifying the issues and putting them into the context, what it does act for is um, it can be, you know, a tool for policymakers. It can be that power to advocate for certain things, you know, that we need programs then, for example, for youth to get on the land, um, to work with knowledgeable people in their community about, um, you know, all aspects of their food system. So I think that's where, you know, the food guide will be helpful for Indigenous people is because um, it's got that, um, you know, scientifically found um evidenced foundation for the recommendations and um we know that for example traditional food systems when people are eating some traditional food in their diet that their diet by nutrition quality is far superior when they don't have traditional food in there and that's been documented with a lot of research now so we've had like we've put a lot of information on the need for traditional food for the quality of diet so with recommendations like that that are backed um, with research and um, good research, research that's included communities in the process, 
it could be a powerful tool for the kinds of policies and programs that are going to keep supporting what communities are already doing to reclaim their food systems, um, try to get healthier food in their schools, and so forth. You know, when you when you mentioned this, I mean, and 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 as I was looking over the food guide and things, you know, very basic level. When you look at this, at least for me, I go, well, yeah, we should all be be looking to to grow locally or eat locally. Uh, in in terms of of the indigenous people in the north, uh, as you mentioned, their diets uh, were were very different from what they were heavy into the. Uh, to the to, to the local food, the fish, the you know the the wildlife and those kind of things, and and and, and you think, yeah, it's unfortunate that that has been stripped away. And but the other thing that comes to mind is, uh, you kind of hinted at this to some degree, but I'm just thinking about how how we have impacted the environment for that wildlife at this point in time. You know, you hear about contamination a lot these days in food sources. Yeah. Um, well, actually, right now, I'm I'm up in Whitehorse, and I'm working with um, the Arctic Institute of Community-Based Research uh, with my colleague, Norma Cassie, who's from Old Crow. Mm. Uh, she's Gwich In, and um, she has been telling me, you know, about their work for, like, the past, probably going on four decades now, of protecting that porcupine caribou herd mm. that migrates. Mm. So, if there's... Um, exploration, and you know, she was mentioning how the U.S. policy on environment is, um, you know, it's the protections for the reserve where the caribou are located sometimes is being threatened because they want to open that up to exploration yeah. and extractive development, yeah. and that's going to have devastating effects on, you know, like calving grounds, wintering grounds, which will interrupt the cycle. So that's just one example. Um, but as you say, the environment is changing because of climate change. So mm-hmm. now we're seeing, um, you know, warmer temperatures and the predictions are that, you know, the ice and the permafrost is changing and that's all going to affect like smaller animals and because everything is interconnected and, you know, people who, indigenous people who live on the land understand that um, at a quite a, a a high level, you know, um, I would say like a multiple PhD level for how they understand the interconnections. You know, they're trying to adapt uh, given what's coming, but definitely, you know, we have um, the environment for these ecosystems up in the north are very affected, but they're also going to affect, you know, I talked to elders in my community of Ganawage and they're affecting um, the planting seasons, the rain, and when the rain comes, and that affects, you know, corn growth and and, and those sorts of things. So the food guide, this food guide is actually um, has um, recommendations. The recommendations are supporting diets that are going to be less um, impactful in a negative way on the environment, right? So the emphasis on more plant-based foods, um, is is because we you know it's thinking about sustainability and the diets the impact our diets have on the sustainability of of the environment just globally. So I think that's a positive aspect. <clears throat> but like you know, there's always this um, distinct perspective that we have to examine for Indigenous peoples' uh, food systems and their diets and their their health. So, how how long have you been working in this area? Um, well, I've been a dietitian since 1992, mm-hmm. um, and then I've been doing food research 
you know, probably since 95. But my work is, is kind of, um, I focus on food, even though I'm a nutritionist and it seems obvious to most people, but in nutrition, there's a lot of focus on um, metabolism and you mm. can really get into the, you know, cellular level of what's happening with nutrients. And it's easy to forget, you know, the stuff that comes before you swallow your food. So there's kind of like the part of nutrition that focuses on what's happening before the food gets in your mouth, the culture piece, the behavior piece, the social determinants piece. And so that's where, you know, I really like to to focus because, you know, in my observations um, and just working with people like, um, I'll give you the example of when I was working in EU Ishji for my master's, mm. I was looking at how how diets were changing by asking um, different age groups of women or generations of women, you know, what are you eating? Just basically tell me everything you ate for the past 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then when you get that enough of those recalls in a group of people, then you get a sense of like um, that elders were actually eating the most food in terms of the weight of it, of traditional food. Um, And this decreased for the younger generations. So it was showing what people were saying that younger people are eating less traditional foods. So that was interesting, you know, because it was sort of reproducing another study that had found that. But what I found most um, profound were the stories that I was hearing from, you know, the people who had lived through the um, construction of the dams in the 70s that block, you know, dammed the rivers and flooded um, incredible amounts of territory there and um, trap lines and so forth. And they were saying, you know, the health issues that they were um, concerned about in the community at the time, which were, you know, um, overweight and obesity were high, high um, rates. And people were saying, well, this is because of the changes in the land, because we can't go on the land in the same way we did. We're not getting those foods. When we're out on the land, we're very active. We're also, we feel very good about who we are and it's about identity. And so all of those things are so important for health. But when you look at food, you can get at all of those aspects, right? All of the important um, factors that influence people's health. So we're seeing the results of, of poor diets, but the poor diets are not because people are not making good choices or they have to be educated to make good choices. That's, that's not even close to what the reason is. It's just that there isn't any opportunity to eat healthy and that's changed because of, you know, industry and policies. And so, you know, like if we're wanting to improve food choices and nutrition, we need to be looking at that bigger picture. We need to be, you know, looking at how we can make policies so that we're not seeing like year after year rates of food insecurity in the North at like 40 to 60%. So, um, that's how I got into this. You know, I started to look at nutrition, but then I went into public health uh, because I wanted to understand those factors that affect populations and their status, their health status, their nutrition status. Mm. Thank you for that. We're going to have to take a short break and we will be right back with you. Don't go away. And our listeners, don't go away either. We'll be right back on Element FM right after this. We're back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And on the line with us uh, from the Yukon, we have Trina, uh, actually Dr. Trina Delormer. And uh, Trina, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, You can say Delormer. How do you say it yourself? I say, well, if I'm saying it in English, I'll say Delormer. But if I say it in French, I'll say Delormer. Okay. 
Thank you for that. So just before the break, we were we were talking, and you were specifically talking about uh, how you got into this through uh, through being a nutritionalist and looking at that. And you know, as we were as as you were speaking, I was thinking about how you mentioned poor diet, and you you talked about the youth and how it was the elders that were specifically uh, tr- looking to more towards the traditional diet and how that was changing for youth. And I'm, I was just wondering about that influence of of you know modern society and fast food and and uh, and all the, uh, the all the snacks that we can get off the shelf so quickly and readily and and how easy that is for us and and I imagine in the north that might be some of the more uh, affordable foods because I know getting food to the north fresh fruits vegetables um, that's quite expensive yeah definitely and I mean I think the issue with um the kind of poor, the fact, I think it's quite interesting actually that the fact that we have a food guide to guide people on how to make choices when they're eating food from the industrial food system or from the grocery stores um, tells you that our food system is not healthy, right? We mm. need to have a, a whole review and scientific recommendations to say, like, this is what you know you need to be eating because the food system is not inherently healthy. But the traditional food system is, you know, so you didn't need a food guide mm. um, for that. Hello? Hello? Um, but yeah, I, when we think about food um, security, um, having enough, having access to um, enough food that's nutritious and, and ultrally, uh, also culturally um, acceptable is, is, is a huge issue there. And what we see if we look at the many, many studies that have been done now, um, dietary studies, we see the pattern of food that people buy in the store is of, um, you know, it's not of high nutrition quality. Mm. It's not really represented even on the food guide that we see. Like we see a lot of uh, refined carbohydrate foods. Right. So these would be foods like white pasta, um, white rice, um, bread, you know, flour, so bannock, um, that sort of thing, you know, and that's because those foods are easy to um, store and you can transport large quantities of them, you know, so it's a food that is, um, and it's, they're cheap as well. So it's not surprising that these are the foods that we see in communities. And as you said, like to transport fresh fruit and vegetables, it's, it's um, costly as well. Um, so I think that that's a big issue right there. And, and we don't have, um, in Canada, we don't have a food policy or a food security policy that would put in place mechanisms to, you know, diff- make those, uh, maybe subsidize the cost of those healthier foods. Um, there, are, there is one program called the Nutrition North Program, mm-hmm. and this is the one that was formerly the program that would, um, you know, cover the cost of shipping food to the mm. north or remote communities. Not all of these communities are in, you know, the north. Some of them are in remote northern provinces or just remote communities. Um, so now they've re, um, they've revamped that program and they're evaluating it right now. Um, so, But that's just one small program and not all communities are eligible for it. So, you know, it's just to say that it's a big issue. We have, you know, not enough um, programs that are going to address it, but stronger than that, or it's going to have more impact is we need policies and political will to change that situation because this has been going, the food insecurity crisis has been going on 
Um, we started, you know, documenting it with the community health surveys in 2007, you know, so we're talking um, over 10 years now that we keep documenting these high rates of uh, food insecurity for Indigenous communities in Canada, but like more, um, we the, the data we have for the North is also pretty, um, pretty consistently high. So the words you use that you've been throwing around there, a couple of words, security and insecurity in terms of food. I'm guessing that just refers to the availability of having food on an ongoing basis that is uh, sustainable for for the uh, for the people. Is that is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, and that's that's a really good question, because um, I'm sorry. And I was assuming, you know, we've been hearing a lot about that question. But food security is defined as having um, both availability of food having access to the food, and then being able to use that food. So there's different dimensions mm. to to food security. So, you know, people who um, don't have money to buy food are not food secure, even mm. though there could be a lot of food on the shelves around them, right? Right. Or people who go to a food bank to get food will be getting um, access to food, but maybe they don't know how to use it, you know, how to cook it. So those are dimensions of food um, insecurity. And the way that that gets measured in surveys that, you know, we, we like to use so we can monitor the status of, of households who don't have enough food. It's, um, it's an 18-question questionnaire, so it's quite, you know, a lot of questions to do that. And that's how we assess food insecurity, and there's actually different levels. So you can have people who are at a low level of food security, meaning these are people who worry about not having enough money to have food, um, you know, and as you get to the more serious, there's moderate food insecurity and then severe food insecurity. That's when people are like going for a day without eating. So there's based on the experience of what you do when you don't have enough food, there's a questionnaire that accesses those experiences and then they come up with, you know, a score and that's how we get our, our data. So that's what's actually measured by mm. asking people, you know, what is going on in your house. And, and actually there's parts of it that focus specifically on children. You mm. know, did you change your diet so that your child could eat, so those kind of things. So that's what we're talking about. Okay. Now, that survey or those questions, the 18 questions that you're referring to there, is that something people can do online or is that something you're specifically doing yourselves? So the way that it's used is it's included on health surveys. Okay. So in Canada, we have these, you know, surveys that assess the health of the population. So among other things, they're measuring food and food security, but they'll be measuring some aspects of dietary intake, physical activity. So, you know, it's a standard um, health assessment that are done across uh, the country. So that's where those questions get asked. It's not, I mean, people could look it up online and, mm. and find an example of it. And, sure. and um, but it's not something that people would do sort of to assess their own situation. Right. So let me ask you, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but if we talk about the North and we talk about traditional food diets for, for anywhere, you know, actually uh, any indigenous uh, uh, community or population of people, if, if there was, uh, if, if everyone changed to, a, to their traditional diet, would there be enough traditional food to actually sustain that for people, do you know? Well, there's a lot of calculations that would be <laughs> Actually, one of my colleagues is a—he's um, a wildlife biologist, and mm. he's, you know, sort of been working with some calculations like that, but not a lot—not along the lines of how much food would mm. would, would needed would would need mm. to be there, but more along the lines of what the value of the food that's produced mm. in the north is, because 
we can put values on oil and gold and things like that. But he wants to show that, you know, there's a lot of valuable food also there. I don't know. I mean, we have to think about how our communities have changed, right? I mean, it would be difficult for sure. Um, And one of those factors is just, are there enough um, animals Mm. out there? And I think in some places there are, in other places there won't be. Um, And I think about, you know, in, in, again, in Ganawage, going south and looking at another kind of food system, you know, one that's primarily plant-based, corn, beans, and squash. Mm -hmm. Um, sisters, you know, yeah. on our reserve community, we've looked at this question just very preliminarily, like, what do we need to do to be, you know, we talked about to express our food sovereignty, which is more, it's different from food security, because we're getting at the idea that, you know, we should have, um, we should have the ability to practice our responsibilities to take care of our traditional foods, because mm. that's a strong part of not just our identity as Haudenosaunee people, as Iroquois people, but it's also part of our laws, you know, that we need to ensure that everyone has enough to eat. But if we look at the the land, you know, we haven't done calculations, but it would be very difficult, I think, to produce the quantities, but not impossible. You know, I think there are ways of doing that. Mm. We just need to bring together, you know, those people who are very knowledgeable about the food systems and and all of the factors that um, influence availability of foods, either from a, a you know like hunting, a hunting society or an agricultural society, and work with um, you know Western methods, scientific methods, Western scientific methods together. I think that's where we're seeing some really exciting work happening. You know, like um, scientists working with knowledgeable. Um, people in the community with indigenous knowledge mm-hmm. and how can they use the two together to understand some of these complex issues. Yeah, that sounds to me like that should have been going on a long time already. So uh, you yeah, know, there's, yeah. there's lots of uh, wonderful indigenous knowledge out there that uh, isn't being tapped, that's for sure. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about diet and diabetes. Okay, and... Um, well, definitely the two are, are related. Um, and probably we're, we have, um, there's been more information coming out about obesity and diet because mm. obesity is probably one of the most important risk factors mm. for um, developing diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that diets that are high in refined carbohydrates, like I had mentioned, the pastas, yep. bread, um, you know, rice, and, and saturated fat um, are will contribute to, um, you know, obesity, which is then a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Right. Um, interesting, though, you know, like we see um, in some places this situation where people don't have enough to eat, but we also see obesity Right. So it seems counterintuitive, but it's not. It's just because of the quality of the food and the Uh, patterns of eating that people get into when they're in a food insecure situation. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And and that's something I didn't just think until you just mentioned it. I hadn't thought about. And that is um, um, eating uh, 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 when people eat, like you were just talking about, you know, the 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 the. Jeez, it just went out of my head there. But um, yeah. when, yeah, just those those habits that people get into and when they eat and those kind of things. Um, yeah. I, I'm just wondering, looking back over the time as a nutritionist that you've been involved, is there something that, that 
has surprised you a lot in terms of what you've seen over the over the years? Um, surprised me. I'm not well, sure what I mean by that. You know, I don't know if it's, it's something about a, diet, if it's something about where we're going and, and how food has impacted us or, or something that you just didn't expect that, that you discovered or someone mentioned to you that, that just, you know, just came out of left field. I, I don't know. Um, let me see. I mean, it's, it's been a, a very, like, I'm, I'm so privileged. I just, I, I thoroughly enjoy my, my, um, my job, you know, and I think what surprises me is, you know, we can understand and often people understand these big changes that brought about, you know, people's diets to be changing and the constraints they're under so that the choices they can make don't reflect um, necessarily the healthiest foods or the foods that they would like to eat. And then um, people tend to think that it's then their willpower or somehow they mm-hmm. have to do things differently, like mm-hmm. it's up to them. Um, to be responsible for their food choices. And I think we, we've we overplayed that for a long time, and definitely that's changing. And I think we see that in this food guide, the the focus that's on, mm. you know, okay, we know these are this is the healthy pattern to eat, but we also recognize that it's a challenge for many people to just buy those foods. And then so that becomes, that's becoming an issue now. Yeah, so I'm happy to see that development because, like I said, people, when they're concerned about their diet or their health, their health, you know, will say to me, oh, I need you to tell me what to eat. Mm. And um, I always felt like, I, you know, I thought that's what nutritionists did probably when I started the field. But, um, you know, that's the, probably the most, the least effective way for anybody to, um, you know, try to eat better. So I have a question for you. Uh, and I was thinking, uh, I was, I was going to ask you about metabolism. We're, we're gonna, running out of time. But I, I was also thinking about why does our stomach have so much power over us? <laughs> Well, food is very, you know, it's very emotional, right? Like mm. if, if I asked you, what are some of your earlier, earliest food memories? Usually, um, you know, people have good memories or they might have like a very strong negative memory. Mm. And I think our, our nervous system and our emotions are, are all very much um, in, our, in our digestive system. Mm. You know, they're, they're highly connected, mm. our nervous system and our digestive system. Mm. So, like, you know, if you get nervous, some people feel nauseous, some people, you know, will get the runs, something that, you know, dietitians, we talk about digestion from both ends quite easily, which is <laughs> not surprising to me, but maybe surprising to you. But yeah, like, um, so I think that's why, you know, we, we make associations. And when you eat something, you can feel very comforted, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, when people are stressed, they might want to eat because they feel comforted. People are feeling low, you know, if they eat food, it gives them that feeling. So we can actually, um, become, you know, there's even such things as, you know, people who become addicted to food because, um, of of the connection between emotions and, and food. So I think the importance on having positive, um, culture around food, you know, having a very strength, like a positive focus, not on this, don't do this. And you know, this is bad for you. Those are not necessarily the best messages we want to be uh, sharing with with uh, our kids or our families. Mm. Well, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. And I want to thank you very much, uh, Trina, Dr. Trina Delorimer, for uh, being on the... Yes, <laughs> tripping over the word there, sorry, <laughs> for being on the show. I, I really appreciate your time. And thanks for calling us from the Yukon. And uh, do take care. And I look forward to uh, hearing more about this.
Okay, thank you very much. It's been uh, fun to talk to you today. Thank you very much. And you have been listening to Moment of Truth, and Moment of Truth has been brought to you in part by APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network.